Well, good morning, church. As we turn back into the gospel, the book of Acts, not the gospel, the book of Acts, as we continue our study in it, we're going to be pressing into the revolutionary power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and by revolution, I, I do not mean an open revolt that quickly changes the political landscape of a country, you know, like the American Revolution or the French Revolution or the Bolshevik Revolution or, or the Communist and Chinese Revolution. But actually what I'm talking about, what we see in the text today, is the kind of quiet revolution that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings and how it can transform a society from the inside out. And it actually does it apart from any political process. Now, now in saying this, I want to be, be clear, I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't participate in the political realm. Not saying that. Our votes count, and they're, they're one of the ways that we can try to influence the overall trajectory of our nation. But when it comes down to it, what have we seen in election after election after election? We've seen that politicians can never legislate what the gospel is able to produce. Politicians can never legislate what the gospel is able to produce. And that is actual lasting societal change. And that's because, as we look at our text today, I think the main idea that we have coming out of this text is that the gospel transforms society from the inside out as individual people come to faith in Jesus Christ and submit their lives to his sovereign lordship. That's how the gospel transforms a society. But we've got to acknowledge... And it's actually even clear in the text that this kind of transformation, that this kind of revolution doesn't just happen overnight. I mean, after all, this riot in Ephesus occurs after Paul has been in ministry in Ephesus for quite a while, right? Three months in the synagogue, no riot. A year, over a year, preaching in the hall of Tyrannus, no riot. Doesn't happen right away. At the same time, we, we see that there's movement in the Christians in Ephesus. Luke is very careful to highlight for us that there was a period where after these new Christians came to faith in Christ, they were still holding on to their old lifestyle. They were still living in their old ways. They were, they were worshiping God in public and practicing magic in their basement at home. That they're trying to hold on to two things that don't work together. But slowly over time, the grace of God began to produce the fruit of real life change in these Christians in Ephesus. Acts 19, starting in verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers confess, came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of them who had practiced the magic arts brought their books and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to come to be 50,000 pieces of silver or roughly the yearly wage of 157 people. No small amount. Yet as we keep reading, and we, and we get up right to the point of the riot that we have today, what's the result of these Christians coming out confessing their sins, burning their books of magic? Verse 20. 
So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The life transformation of these Christians truly living according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, living according to God's commands, actually has a greater influence in more people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're taking notes today, as we go to our text, we're going we're to organize a sermon around just three simple headings. The astonishing impact of the gospel, the subversive message of the gospel, and the unexpected exoneration of the church. So let's go to this astonishing impact beginning in verse 23. At about that time, what time was that? The time when the word of God is continuing to increase and prevail mightily through the town of Ephesus. About that time there rose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger. Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of our great god Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she might even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We'll stop there. So as we begin this account, it's important important for us to slow down and kind of answer some questions about Artemis. I mean, mean, she's one of the most dominant cults in the Greco-Roman world. One of the most dominant goddesses. Historians tell us that her temple was the largest building in the Greek world. It covered an area four times the Parthenon in Athens, Greece. Four times. In in, in terms of modern equivalence, it's roughly the size of a football field, the temple. And in terms of grandeur, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had pillars that were 60 feet tall. So, so this is an amazing place. And as for Artemis herself, she was believed to be a god who was very helpful. She was a goddess of fertility who helped women in childbirth. She was a huntress of wild beasts and the goddess of death. And this is important because these three areas of life in this cult offered something significant to her followers. First of all, to, to, to women especially, There's the difficulty of conceiving. Then there's the threat of death during childbirth or the consistent concern that your child will be born and not live after they're born. All of these things, very real issues in the ancient world and a reason to come worship Artemis. She promises success for those who relied on wild game for their daily food. And she promises supernatural intervention for those who are facing death. So as you can kind of see why she has such an impact. But the cult of Artemis actually promised something even greater to the city of Ephesus. 
She promised that Ephesus would have a prominent position among all the cities of Asia, and the city would have an unending stream of worshipers whose pockets were full of money. So we can see her prominence in terms of worship, and we can see her centrality in regards to the city of Ephesus. Everything in Ephesus revolves around her. She's the primary source of revenue. It's like, it's like people who have their businesses around Disneyland or who have them around the sports stadiums that are scattered across our country. They rely on all those people that come in who have all this money to spend. Yet as the gospel's impact grew in the city, what happened? It's the gospel's impact. We, we, we see that the, that, that the source of great concern starts to come up among those who profited, profited among Artemis the most. Demetrius and the silversmiths. The, the other tradesmen. We, we quickly touch on a couple verses. What, what is his argument? Number Verse 24. Her silver shrines brought no little business to the silversmiths. Verse 25. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Verse 27. There's a danger that this trade of ours may come into disrepute. Which is another way of saying we're going to lose our business. He doesn't seem very worried about her worship. See, see, when we listen to Demetrius, it is not the worthiness of Artemis as a god to be feared and worshipped that drives his concern. No, his primary concern is the way that her faithful worshipers were good for business and increased his personal wealth. But that raises the question. How did the gospel... How did the gospel really threaten his bottom line? You just think about it. Did the gospel undercut his business by adding yet another God to, to, to all the pantheon of gods that they were already worshiping? Was it simply adding another God? Was it the straw that broke the camel's back? No. Did, did these newfound followers of Jesus go out and, and, and start creating their own right? Did they vandalize his shop and steal his statues? Did they go to face the temple of Artemis itself? The answer is no. Did the followers of Jesus launch a public campaign against the worship of Artemis? Once again, the answer is no. The gospel of Jesus Christ threatened his bottom line because of the gospel message. The message that Paul's proclaiming for over two years. Jesus lived, died, and rose again for sinners, and God will forgive you and forever restore you to God if you turn and trust in Jesus. That, that's the, the essence of the message that he's reasoning with them. Yet the gospel message comes with a subversive subtext. There's a, there's a subversive subtext. Verse 26. The gods made with hands are not gods at all. So in the proclamation of the gospel is a proclamation that undoes all 
all of the idolatry that surrounds them. Now, I know that a number of you have had opportunities to travel around the world, and I've had an opportunity to, to be in a number of countries on various mission endeavors. I did it for three and a half years with Training Leaders International, and, and most of my time that I spent overseas was, was working in countries that were hopelessly mired in idolatry. And, and, and I know from my visits, I mean, just my visits, it's, it's very tempting as you visit these countries, even as a Christian, to, to get caught up in the amazing craftsmanship that, that, that supports all of their worship because th- these temples are amazing. All the work that goes into them. And, and I've visited temples and shrines and pagodas in, in a couple of countries. I've even toured, in, in Bhutan, I've toured a school that trained young artisans in the craft of replicating their gods. Every proportion, every angle, every line, learning to draw that and, or create it in perfect conformity to the original image. Whether the medium is clay or stone or, or on canvas. I mean, they had copies of paper with all sorts of angles so they could know everything that they were supposed to do. Yet every time, every time I made these visits, in one of the countries it was necessary because the only way to be in there was as a tourist. We couldn't come in under a missionary visa. I left those temples every day grieved. Because what they did, they reminded me of the insanity of idolatry. There's actually an insanity of idolatry, and we see it in Isaiah 44, starting in verse 9. This is a passage that just was constantly on my mind every time I traveled. Starting in verse 9, all who fashion idols are nothing. And the things that they delight in do not profit Their witnesses do not see nor know that they might be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that's profitable for nothing? Verse 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and he works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with the planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. They know not nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and I have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So when I talk about the insanity of idolatry, that's, that's what we're talking about, what Isaiah highlights. How do you take a log 
and use it to warm yourself and to cook your food and the other half to worship. See, see, in this, the insanity of idolatry is the irrational belief that an object of our imagination and of our own creation deserves our worship and has supernatural power to intervene in our life. It's the insanity. In fact, we see the aspects of this insanity in the response of Demetrius and the silversmiths in Ephesus. I mean, just think about it. If, if, if they really believed that Artemis was a powerful and magnificent goddess, why was a riot the best way to defend her honor? I mean, I mean isn't the mighty Artemis able to defend herself? I mean, if she's that great of a god, can't she handle this, this new upstart religion? Can't she go set things straight? No. She's powerless because she was a never a god to begin with. But see, the truth of the matter is the insanity of idolatry is not restricted to the distant countries on the other side of the globe or the deep jungles of the Amazon. Now, civilized Westerners can be just as idolatrous. Americans can be just as idolatrous. Except we, 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 don't, we don't take little statues and put them up on our mantles. No, no, the gods that we worship are ideas and power and money and pleasure. Those are our gods. Philosophies, those are our gods. And I say gods because we truly believe these things have the power. They have the power to, to protect us, to complete us, to empower us, or to make us truly happy in life. And that's what all these other ancient people are doing when they come to their gods. They're looking for these, these very answers in their life. Yet if we're honest... If we're honest, what do we inevitably discover in our devotion to these gods? And I'm raising these because these are the kinds of gods that Christians can kind of hold on to at the same time. They can be our gods. What do we discover if we pursue them and worship them long enough? We discover actually they are not gods at all. Let's just take a couple examples. How, how, about, how about the pursuit of power and climbing the ladder of success at work? It promises so many things. But the very pursuit leaves countless people empty, exhausted, and unfulfilled when they reach the pinnacle of their success. When they finally reach whatever level that they were shooting for, they get there to find out it's not what they were looking for. So many people that get to the top of whatever realm they're in, what do they find? They discover that their achievement is not enough to quench their endless thirst for more. There's still a sense of emptiness. But even worse, 
even worse, especially in this arena of pursuing achievement of, in life, is that many of these achievers, when they finally get to the top, have no one to share their achievement with because they chose to sacrifice their marriage and their children on the altar of their personal achievement. Everything to get to the top and to get there to be all alone. How about the tireless pursuit of money and possessions? It leaves people empty as well. On the one hand, these are the very things that just slip through our fingers. Money, we get it. It comes and it goes. It doesn't matter what the amounts are. We get stuff and we're excited about it and then it breaks and it costs us more money. I learned that years ago when I bought a boat. The acronym for boat, break out another thousand. They slip through our hands, but on the other hand, just the same way as with power and achievement, no matter how much we get, we always think we need more when we get there. All the, you know, we, 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 we get to a level and we think, I'll have everything I need, and we get there, we're like, no, I feel like I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more. Just if I had a little bit more, I'd feel safe and secure. Empty promises. How about pursuing pleasure? We live in a culture that loves pleasure. Pleasure in itself. In and of itself, not a bad thing. But if we pursue it as a God, what does it do? It leaves us empty as well. No matter how much pleasure, entertainment, or travel, we, we, can, we can go participate and we can go do. The joy of the moment quickly fades. Honestly, when is most joy and excitement normally leading up to the event? And then it happens and it's quick and it's over and we're like, wow, that happened fast. We're not even leaving our vacation, and we're already planning the next one. See, what do we find ourselves doing? We find ourselves chasing the next pleasure, the next vacation, the next experience, hoping and believing and promising that that one is going to be enough to make me feel full and make me feel whole and complete. It's going to satisfy what I'm looking for. These are just three areas. We, we could certainly add more into the list. But notice in all of this, what, what is our society? What are we, we as Christians? Because, because we're not immune from any of those. Well, what, what do we discover in these time after time after time? We discover they are not gods at all. They cannot deliver what they promise. Yet, instead of recognizing this, how do we often respond to the disappointment of our unfulfilled wishes? Do we recognize the worthlessness of our pursuit? Do we realize the impotence of our God? No. No, in most cases, what do we do and what does our society do? We keep turning to them back over and over and over again to the very same pursuits, hoping that it's going to finally deliver. Isn't that the essence of insanity? doing the same thing over and over and over again with, and still getting the same result. That's the insanity of idolatry. 
And none of us are immune from it. We have to see it. But what does the gospel give us? The gospel gives us a far greater God. So you see, the gospel doesn't just expose the insanity of idolatry and say, it's stupid. No, it gives us an infinitely greater God. A God who's able to deliver on everything that he's ever promised. Not a promise he's made that he can't deliver. Not one. We have a God, why? He created everything that he exists. He upholds the, the, the universe and all of reality by the word of his power. The very essence of his revelation is that he's a covenant-keeping God. We have a God who's the ultimate definition and example of love. Right? We have a God who freely chose to redeem a race of wretched rebels from the just and righteous wrath of his judgment. All of us rightly deserving Eternal punishment. He didn't have to do anything. He could have walked away. He could have cleared the slate. No, he chooses redemption. Even more in that love, God becomes human so that he might perfectly fulfill the law in his life and satisfy our debt of guilt through his substitutionary death and glorious resurrection. Definition and example of love. No other God like that. Even more, he is the rightful object in all of this. We see he's the rightful object of our devotion and affection and worship. In fact, that's why, as we saw last week in Matthew 28, he calls He calls people from every tribe and tongue and nation to abandon their sin, their devotion to worthless gods that are not gods at all so that they might find salvation and they might find hope and they might find joy in him. And find it in him by receiving his free gift of forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, the gospel gives us an infinitely greater and more worthy God. This is the gospel that we proclaim as Christians. And yes, it's it's a subversive message in our culture. Just as it was subversive in the culture of Ephesus. Because the gospel is like light coming into the darkness. When you're in the dark, you can't see well. Sometimes you can't see at all. And it brings light into it. And you can see it for what it is. It exposes false gods. It exposes false ideologies in every single culture that it enters. No culture is immune from the light of the gospel. whether that be the pagan idolatries in Ephesus or it be the unbiblical ideas and philosophies in our own culture about marriage and justice and race and gender. It exposes them as empty. It 
But as we turn back to our passage this morning, what do we see about the riot? Because that's central to the passage. The primary cause of the riot was not the proclamation of the gospel in and of itself. Let's be clear about that. It wasn't the fact that the gospel was being proclaimed. But the fact that there had been a revolutionary life change in the citizens in the town of Ephesus. That's why there's a riot. There's been life change. Those who had come to faith in Jesus Christ were living a different life now. And the change that happened was a quiet but noticeable shift in their devotion from Artemis to Jesus Christ. A quiet but noticeable shift in that all of a sudden the merchants are realizing that their shrines aren't selling. Their profit margins are shrinking. That's a significant change. And this is important to see this change is what leads to the right because it also helps us see something in the Gospel of Acts. Luke points us to something in this text that we have not seen up until this point in the book of Acts and that is a public exoneration of the Gospel. Many things have been said about the Gospel. Most of them negative. But here we have a public exoneration of the church and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go to verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of, of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the stone, the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. If you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess, If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. Let them bring the charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger today of being charged with a riot. Since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And with this, when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, now when, when the, the city clerk in our text takes the stage, it, it's just important to highlight that this isn't like going over to Port Orchard to the clerk who handles your uh, passport applications. You know, maybe some of you have gone visited that clerk once or twice. No, no, the, the, this is like the highest appointed official in Ephesus. This is like the mayor. He's got the most authority under the Romans in the city of Ephesus. So when you see clerk, don't, don't think some like beady-eyed guys with glasses sitting at a typewriter. This is, this is the mayor. And, what, and what, is, what does the mayor want this unruly mob to know? I'm, I'm just going to highlight three things for now. Number one, he wants them to know that Christianity was not a direct threat to Artemis or the city of Ephesus. He's saying Christianity is not a threat. He's saying everybody, everybody in Asia knows that the temple of Artemis is there. They know that, that the city of Ephesus guards it and keeps it. And since this truth was known throughout the entire empire, the rioters should recognize their concerns are null and void. 
your argument doesn't fly. Number one. Second, and far more importantly, getting to the church. He makes it clear the Christians have not committed a single crime. Not a single crime. On the one hand, they have not violated, vandalized, or tampered with the temple of Artemis in any way. They haven't done any of that. And on the other hand, they haven't gone out in public openly attacking and campaigning against the goddess herself. They haven't done either of those things. And this is really, really, really important because either of these activities would have required immediate punishment under Roman law. Done. It was in Rome's best interest to make sure that all of the religions were protected and guarded and that nobody was messing with them. It's one of the ways they kept the peace. And he's saying the Christians have not broken any laws in regard to the worship of Artemis. Speaking of Rome, finally, he, he wants the entire mob to see that there is a real danger to the city of Ephesus. There's a real danger. And it wasn't the growing impact of Christianity and it was not the waning devotion to Artemis. The true danger was that the Romans might hear about the riot and punish the entire city by stripping it of its every privilege and honor. When a city got out of control, Rome came in and messed everything up. They took away every right, every privilege. They put their own people in place. He's saying... That's what's ahead of us. We could lose everything because of this riot. Danger is not the Christians. Danger is you and your response to these Christians here today, which is why he sends them out. See, it's in the speech that we actually start to understand Luke's purpose in this narrative. There's, a, there's at least two goals, I think, in this account. Number one, he wanted, to see, he wanted his readers of every age to see in the city clerk's own words that Christianity was not a threat to the civic order in Ephesus. And it wasn't a threat to the imperial authority of Rome. Christianity is not a threat. Now that's not to say that the introduction of Christianity did not change the the religious landscape in the empire or in Ephesus. It did change the landscape. But in a society and an empire that embraced a whole host of gods and goddesses, people were free to worship the gods of their choosing. Number two, Luke wanted his readers to see He wanted his readers to see how the gospel transformation of individual Christians could transform the community at large. How the change in individual Christians sitting in individual seats could transform and revolutionize the entire city. We've already seen in the text, the church did not wage an open campaign against idolatry. 
What did Paul do? He reasoned. He reasoned with anyone who would listen and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he reasoned, people came to faith in Jesus Christ. And as these new believers grew in their faith, something began to happen. They didn't just come to faith in Jesus, check a box and say, I'm good to go. No, their love for and devotion to Jesus began to transform them from the inside out. See, see, their new beliefs and their new values as defined by the gospel of Jesus Christ as explained in God's word began to transform their behaviors. That's what I'm saying from the inside out. Christianity doesn't just come from the outside and say, change everything you're doing. That's moralism. Christianity changes us from the inside out. As our new beliefs and our new values in God's word start to define what a life that brings glory and honor to God looks like. And as that happened, more and more Christians abandoned They just abandoned their formal practices. They abandoned their formal worship. They abandoned their formal life. And it was was this quiet but dramatic revolution that took place in the city. And it became noticeable as more and more people simply walked away from Artemis because they discovered a far greater God and Savior in Jesus Christ. They walked away. And you know what? This is a perfect example of what Jesus reveals about the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 13, verse 33. He told them another parable. Kingdom of heaven is like leaven. And we know leaven isn't exactly yeast, but we can think of it like yeast, right? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. Till it was all leavened. Anybody who's ever added yeast to dough to make it rise knows that that little bit of yeast that goes in gets mixed in and works its way all the way through and affects the entire batch. He's saying, how, how does the gospel work? It works like that. From the inside out. See, I think this is important truth for us to recognize and pursue as Christians. Because we live in a day and age where where it seems like everybody thinks that, that politics or getting in power is the solution to every problem. Every year we're we're promised that if we pour all of our time and all of our energy into electing the right people, we're going to fix all the problems in our nation. And for many Christians, that means reestablishing the original priorities and ethics of our nation. Now, Now stay with me here. I'm going to politics just a touch. Not very far. Hold on. Yes. We need to identify and elect men and women of proven character to office. People who aren't devoted to the murder of the unborn or the mutilation of confused children. We need to elect people like that. 
And if all possible, yes, we need to elect committed Christians to office. And yes, it's good for Christians to be involved in social issues that plague our communities. Counseling pregnant women who are scared to keep their child. Rescuing addicts. People enslaved. Just just outright enslaved to drugs and alcohol. Pornography. Addicted. Serving the poor. So hear me, yes. Yes to those things. But see, as I reflected on the passage this week, I, I couldn't help but wonder... Could it be that the fundamental problem in our country is that our politicians simply reflect the beliefs of the electorate? They're there because people think that that's what they want. And I know. I know that in our nation and the way our political system works that the big cities drive the outcome of every election. But you know what we see in this text? Ephesus was a big city. Wasn't it? Big city. How did the city of Ephesus change? It changed from the inside out as individual people came to faith they submitted their lives to the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. That's how it changed. I mean, just think about it. Like, like what would it look like in our nation if every Christian in our nation didn't just vote for Christian values and didn't just complain about the deplorable condition of our nation? What, what would it look like if every Christian in our country was so captivated and convicted by the worth of Jesus Christ that they were actively and joyfully submitting their lives to his sovereign lordship. Not just proclaiming and affirming values, but living a life that's, that, that brings glory to God in light of the gospel. Not out of compulsion, not out of legalism, but the contagious conviction that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Well, what if that was moving us as people, as Christians? What if? What if the countless Christians in our nation stopped living in sexual sin, whether that be indulging in pornography or pursuing any form of sexual pleasure that God expressly forbids? What would it look like if the Christians in our country just abandoned their secret patterns of alcohol and drug abuse? Abuse that nobody ever sees and it's hidden so well? What if they repented of the countless ways they haven't loved their spouses and their children and their neighbors rightly? Take talk of obedience. What if the countless Christians in our nation 
took half the time that they spent talking of politics to share the gospel with people that needed to hear the gospel. Just think about what would it look like if every Christian in our country started to live like that? Would it go unnoticed? I'm certain it wouldn't. But given that I'm not preaching to our nation, but to this church, maybe a better question to ask is what would it look like if every Christian in our church started to live this way? Out of joy in what God has done to bring him honor and glory? Like, what would our church look like? What would our relationships be defined by? What long-standing patterns of sin in your life might be finally overcome and crucified? How might your workplace demeanor be different than it is? And most of all, what might it actually end up looking like and accomplishing in the community in which we live? Not in terms of a campaign, but in submission to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, living a life that brings him honor and glory. What would it look like? That's the challenge that this passage brings to us today. If a handful of Christians can turn a pagan city upside down, It can still happen in our day-to-day. Let's close in a word of prayer.